Okay, so we are continuing through the Minor Prophets. Uh, today we're looking at Jonah and Micah. And uh, uh, we'll get through the Minor Prophets fairly quickly from now on. So I think we have, we'll do a session on Thursday and then we'll be done on Monday um, before we move on to the Old Testament. Because, I mean, if you turn to your Bibles, you'll see most of the, major, uh, the Minor Prophets is only like two or three chapters. So I think... Uh, today we're gonna we're gonna look at Jonah, Jonah and Micah. So turn to your Bibles, follow along. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, agreements, disagreements, whatever it is, feel free to stop me. Feel free to comment. Um, and yeah, <clears throat> so let's turn to Jonah. And the book of Jonah. Jonah is not about prophecies like the previous books we looked at. It's more of a story, a narrative. Some even say that. Jonah, the book itself, is a parable, but Jesus never referred to Jonah as a parable, right? Jesus himself references Jonah as an actual historical figure. Um, so I don't think this book is a, is, a, is a parable. I think it's pretty much an account of what happened. And Jonah is a prophet to Israel, and he's operating around the year 760 BC, which is before Israel, remember the northern kingdom, is taken into captivity in the year 722 BC by the Assyrians. Um, so the Assyrians at this time are still the dominant superpower. They're the empire that's, that's uh, got control over the land, right? So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So we have the Lord calling Jonah and telling him to go to the city of Nineveh, which is a pagan city, very, very far away, right? Nineveh is hundreds of kilometers away from Israel. So the Lord comes to Jonah, who is living in the northern kingdom in Israel, and he says to him, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was also the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, right? And remember, in about... 60, 40 to 60 years, they're the ones who are going to conquer the northern kingdom. They're going to conquer Israel. They will invade and uh, take over and take the Israelites captive. So immediately, it's quite strange that Jonah is not told to go to Jerusalem or Samaria or Bethel or some other place in Israel. Right? That's what we used to see. God is telling the prophets to go to his people with the message. Here he's been told to go to a foreign land to prophesy there. He sent to prophesy to the pagans. And if you're reading Jonah for the first time, you'd expect verse 3 to say, And Jonah got up and went to the people in Nineveh and said, Thus says the Lord. Right? But instead we read, look at verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So what kind of prophet is this? Right? The Lord tells him to go and prophesy to the people and he runs away. So what's going on? And the place that Jonah is told to go to, Tarshish, uh, we, we, so he's not the, the place that he runs away to, Tarshish, we believe is what we know today as modern-day Spain. So Jonah traveled around 3,500 kilometers. If you were to take a flight, it would take five hours long. It's that far. It's that long of a distance. So it's not as though he was going around the corner, right, or he's going to the next province. Back in those days, in the minds of the people, Tarshish was the end of the world. Right? You, you couldn't get past that. There was nothing past that. That is where the world ends. And that's what Jonah is trying to do. He's trying to get to the end of the world. He's trying to flee, to flee from the presence of the Lord. 
it's not as though Jonah has bad theology, right? It's not as though he thinks the Lord isn't everywhere. He knows that God is omnipresent. Just now he will say, I serve the God of the seas and the land. The God I serve is everywhere and controls everything. And I remember, I think it was Mike who said in a sermon once about people in general, he said, you don't believe what you think you believe. You believe what you think, right? And what that means is you can say, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And you can, you intellectually with your mind, you affirm it, but you lose your job or your loved one or something terrible happens to you. And suddenly you're asking yourself, where's God? What's going on? Right? You're filled with anxiety, which says you don't really believe in the sovereignty of God. You just believe it intellectually. You don't believe it. Many times your actions and your response to situations say what you really believe about God. And I believe that's what's happening with Jonah. He says, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And yet he's trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. So his actions are not portraying what he believes about God. His actions do not support his theology. So he flees to a place named Joppa, which is on the coast. And from there, he catches a boat going to Tarshish so he can be, as he says, away from the presence of the Lord. And in this book, there's this constant repetition of the word down, right? Which is a, a sub-theme in Jonah. He goes down to, to Joppa. In verse 5, he goes down into the inner part of the ship. Uh, verse, verse 6 of chapter 2, he goes down into the land whose bars close down forever. So you have this downward descent, right? It's just down, down, and down. And that is not just a physical picture of Jonah. It's more than that. Whenever you rebel against God, where are you going? You're going down. And if you continue in your rebelling, ultimately, it leads to, it leads to hell. It's always a descent when you turn away from the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the, so that the ship threatened to break up. So God throws a great wind on the sea right there, right? God throws a storm right then and there. And this is another theme of the book of Jonah, that God is in control of nature. Here we have a storm, later we have a whale, and then we will get the plants that God makes to grow overnight, and there's the worm, and then God will create a heat wave, right? God is in control of all of these things, which is very important for our understanding of God and who he is. He's not only in control of people and their lives, he's also in, in control of nature. If you think back to the book of Job, when, when God was confronting and questioning Job, he talks about how he formed the earth, right? How he designed nature and orders it and sustained it. He's in control of all the earth and whatever lives in it, from the biggest fish to the smallest worm, even the weather. Every, every natural disaster, every famine, Every drought, hurricane, earthquake, nothing happens without his decree of it. God is in control. So there's a big storm and the sailors are afraid. So they start throwing things off the ship to prevent it from sinking. But Jonah was fast asleep in the inner part of the ship. So remember how Jesus was asleep on the boat during a storm. But Jesus was truly at rest, right? Because he's the Christ. He has been working hard. And so he was resting legitimately. And he was right to do that. But Jonah is not resting legitimately because he's living in rebellion. So it's interesting that he's able to find rest even in this state. And that is a warning. It's frightening how we can be in rebellion against God and we can still sleep soundly. Right? It's crazy and scary how Jonah is in rebellion against God and yet he can sleep peacefully. 
The captain wakes him up and they tell him to call out to his God to stop, to stop the storm. And remember that these sailors are pagans, right? They are polytheists, and that means that they believe in many gods because uh, they're calling on Jonah to call, to, to call out to his God. And they might be what's called a henotheist. Uh, henotheism is, is where they only have one God, but they don't deny that there are other gods, right? So they will say, we who live in Tarshish only have one God, right? We who live in Corinth have our one God. We who live in Joburg have our God in Durban. Cape Town, etc., etc. So they say to Jonah, try your God, call out to him. He might be the one to spare our lives and stop the storm. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So these people are very superstitious and they cast lots. They roll the dice to determine who's the reason for the storm. And the book of Proverbs tells us, Who's in charge of casting lots, right? It's God. You throw the dice. There's no such thing as luck or chance, right? God determines the outcome of the dice that will land on the two or the five. God is in control and the lot ends up on Jonah. So they questioned Jonah, asking him, where is he from and where, where does he stay? Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So you see how he knows the right theology, right? I don't serve the God of Tarshish or Corinth or the God of the Ephesians. I serve the God who made everything under the heavens and the earth and the seas. So he tells the men and they are, they are very afraid. Then they ask him what to do. And he says, if you throw me overboard, then the storm will end because he knows that it's because of him that God is doing this. So in this sense, Jonah is like Christ, right? He's willing to give up his life for these sailors. If you throw me overboard, you will live. Christ gave up his life to save lives, and Jonah is compared to Christ. He's, Jonah is the only prophet who is directly linked to Christ in the Bible. But we'll look at that just now. Eventually, eventually, what they do is they throw him overboard, but before that they pray. Right Now look who they pray to. Look at verse 14. Therefore they call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from, ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the pagans prayed to the Lord, right? They make sacrifices, and then they make vows. These vows are probably vows to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices there. And this is one of the major themes in Jonah, which is irony, right? The use of irony. If you're reading this for the first time, you don't know why Jonah's fleeing, right? But if you know the story, you know that Jonah doesn't want to tell the pagan people of Nineveh about God. Because even if he tells the people about the coming judgment on the land, Jonah knows the character of God. He knows that God is gracious and kind and merciful. Jonah knows that if the people of Nineveh re repent, God will not destroy Nineveh. Right? So Jonah wants Nineveh to be destroyed. Why would Jonah want the people of Nineveh to be destroyed? Because they are Assyrians. And Jonah knows the prophecies of what the Assyrians are going to do to the Israelites. Right? God will use the Assyrians to judge his own people and bring destruction to them. And he wants them to rather be destroyed and go to hell. Right? Because he doesn't want his, his people to be hurt later on, as the prophecies say. So he doesn't want the Gentiles to be saved. 
And so he rebels against God and he ends up on a boat with pagans, right? And what happens? These Gentiles get saved. And it's kind of ironic, but it's a great example of how God, in spite of our sin and rebellion, still uses our evil for good, right? Even for saving other people. God even used sin, the wickedness of men, to bring about salvation when people chose to, to crucify Jesus on the cross. But remember that just because Jonah rebelled and people got saved does not give us license to willingly rebel under the guise of getting people saved, right? Don't go, I don't know, don't go visiting uh, a strip club and when you ask what you're doing there, you tell us you're sharing the gospel, right? We need to be careful of that. You know, shall we sin so that grace may abound? No, God forbid, Paul tells us in Romans. And then verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and then we get to chapter two chapter two is really it's a prayer it's Jonah praying to the Lord out of the belly of the whale he's been taken to the depths inside the belly of a whale so remember we spoke of large bodies uh, of water as a theme in scripture it's a picture of God's judgment so think of the flood think of storms of judgment think of the Red Sea and Jonah uses watery image, imagery here. He's been, take, he's been taken into the depths of the water in the belly of a whale. And in my view, in my opinion about this text, Jonah probably dies because it's unlikely to be in water in a fish and still live. I think he died and then was resurrected. Obviously, the Lord could have kept him alive. Uh, and some people do hold to the view that Jonah was uh, alive for three days in the belly of the whale. Um, but uh, I think he died because remember he's the only prophet who was likened to Christ who died and then was resurrected so he's taken down and the language used if you read the prayer the language used being in the belly of Sheol and the watery imagery being that of judgment the language used is really a description of hell right that's the image you're supposed to be getting judgment and death now, what was Jonah's desire when we started reading in chapter 1 in the beginning? Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. And in a sense, he got what he wanted, right? And that is one of the fearful things. God often gives us what we want. Romans 1 is a great example of that. Romans chapter 1. People continue in their rebellion and they say, we want to be free and do our own thing. We want to be free from God. And God says, okay, and God removes the restraints. Right? He gives them over to their desires, to their own sinful abominations. And God does the same thing with his own people, right? with believers. If you continue to want and desire something that is wrong, the Lord may well give it to you. And then there's going to be consequences. Jonah wants to be free from the presence of the Lord, and God gives him that experience. Remember, hell is not a place where God isn't. Right? David in the psalm says that. David in uh, Psalm 139, David says, where can I flee your presence? Even if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, you are there, right? So you, you cannot say God is omnipresent except for hell, right? God is not in hell. God is omnipresent. He is in hell. And I hope you understand what I mean when I say that. People talk about hell being a place without God's presence or it being a Christless eternity. Hell is not Christless, right? The book of Revelation says 
he is sitting there, right there, watching them. Right? It says they will burn in the presence of the Lamb. So it's not Christless. What it means is you are removed from the gracious attributes of God. So God is there, but he's only there in wrath and judgment. And all you will experience is fear, horror, horror, uh, sorrow, regret, remorse, and despair and, dis- and depression for all eternity. And so Jonah is getting a little foretaste of that, which is what he wanted, right? That's what it is to be removed from the presence of God. So be careful of your heart's desire. Be careful of fantasies and fantasizing and letting your mind wander because God could put you in a situation where the fantasy could become a reality because you keep on wanting that thing, right? It could be sexual sin. It could be greed or power or status or anything done in a sinful way. So chapter two, verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Uh, but in the midst of this prayer, Jonah has hope. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So he knows that he's going to come back to Jerusalem to see the temple because he realizes, Lord, if you have preserved me or if you've, if you've saved me from drowning, then you still have work for me to do. Right. The Lord could have the Lord could have let him die there. Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So that, that is one of the great statements in Scripture. right? Verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the truth, isn't it? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It ultimately belongs with Him. Uh, and then Jonah is vomited out by the whale. And then... Get to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh uh, according to the word of the Lord. So this time Jonah obeys. Jonah travels hundreds and hundreds of kilometers to get to Nineveh. Remember that he's by the coast. And now he has to travel there. It's way inland. It's, it's, it's a very far distance. And then let's just, let's turn to Matthew 12, right? So if you just go to Matthew, the gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel and chapter 12 quickly. And if you go down to verse 38. So Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 38, then some, of, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus answers, verse 39, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, The men of Nineveh, uh, the, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right. And then also if you just go to uh, Luke's gospel. So turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 verse 29. <clears throat> when the crowds were increasing... 
he began to say, speaking of Jesus, this generation is an evil generation for it seeks a, for it seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. So it's quite enigmatic, right? Um, what Jesus is saying is, is enigmatic. He says, Jonah will be a sign. So there's a link between three days and three nights. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so Jesus will be in the grave for three days and three nights. So I believe Jonah was, was dead in the belly of the whale because Christ compares himself to him in death and resurrection. As Jonah was, uh, as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, so Christ will be to this generation. So what is this sign alluding to? So Jonah gets to Nineveh in chapter 3, right? So turn back there. Turn back to Jonah. And we are told Nineveh is a huge, great city. It takes him three days just to get through the city. And then he preaches the shortest sermon in the world. So look at verse 4 of chapter 3 in Jonah. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it, right? That's his message. Some, some people think that Jonah said more and that it just wasn't recorded. I don't think he added more to that because, remember, he doesn't want them to be saved, right? It's like when you have to do something begrudgingly, out of obligation, and you really don't, have, you really don't want to. Um, it's like when, say, you have a sibling and you, you, you fight and, you know, you're forced to apologize. And like, say sorry, and you're like, okay, fine, I'll apologize. And all you say is sorry, and even then you whisper it because you're not really sorry. And that's the idea here. Um, Jonah is saying it out of obligation, right? He doesn't want them to say. He just has to get it done. Jonah is not saying, like we see in the prophets, you know, unless you repent in 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed and this and this and this and this. He leaves out a lot of information. And yet, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You see that? The whole city repents. They even put ash and sackcloth on the animals in repentance. So it's a citywide revival from the shortest sermon ever preached. And Jonah is very unhappy about that. Right? When, he, when he's gone through the city, he sits on the one side in sort of a, a desert area and he waits. He warned the city that in 40 days it will be destroyed. Now he's going to wait 37 days to see if the city does get destroyed. So how did they know to repent just from that? Right. So what we see in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel helps us. Jonah himself was assigned to the people of Nineveh. How was Jonah assigned to the people of Nineveh? What is it about Jonah that told the people of Nineveh something about this God? It's not his personality. It's that, remember, Jonah, was, Jonah died and was swallowed by a fish. And yet, here he is alive, telling the people God will judge them. Here's a prophet who rebels against God. But God has mercy upon him. So his life, Jonah himself, is a sign to the people that this God is gracious. His death and resurrection. His testimony and experience shows that this God is merciful because he flees, he flees, he flees from God and God still pre uh, uh, preserves him and brings him back safely. So the people have this hope that maybe this God will do the same for us. And I think that's what that phrase mean, means 
in the same way that Christ is a sign. How is Christ a sign? His death and resurrection are a sign, right? His death tells us how much God hates sin, but also how much he loves that he is willing to destroy his son so that we can also be saved. The resurrection is a vindication of that, right? And so Christ in his, his own life is assigned to that generation during the time of Christ and the entire world, right? So look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had, that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God does not destroy the city. It's not, it's not that God changed his mind in his eternal decrees, right? His, his eternal decree was always to respond to their repentance with relenting. I hope you understand what I mean by that. God doesn't change his mind. In his dealings with us, he responds to us. So when you do repent, there is a response to that in our relationship with him. And then we get to chapter 4. So Jonah, Jonah, Jonah represents Israel. And he's a warning to us Christians as well. So verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So Jonah is really upset that God did not destroy the city. Verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Toshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is madness, right? Like I knew you were a loving God. That's why I didn't want to do this. And that's what Jonah's saying. And, and Jonah knows his theology. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and, and, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's ironic because those are the very attributes of God that kept Jonah from being in hell. The reason Jonah is not condemned to eternal judgment is because God is gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And yet Jonah is angry with God for displaying those attributes to the city of Nineveh, to the pagans. It's ironic, right? He doesn't want the people to be saved and he's upset to see them repent. And so Jonah throws a tantrum. He goes out the city and he sits there and it's quite hot. So verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So remember, Jonah was exceedingly displeased and upset when God decided not to destroy the people. But he's exceedingly glad when he gets a little bit of comfort. And that's the challenge to Israel and to me and you as believers. Uh, what should make us exceedingly happy? What makes, the what makes the kingdom of God happy? What makes heaven happy? There is joy before the angels of God when one sinner repents, right? The salvation of other people, even if they are our worst enemies, even if they are from a different culture, background, ethnicity, or country, that should bring us the greatest joy, right? That should make us exceedingly glad, especially for those of us who enjoy the comfort and materialism of our society today, right? We can become obsessed with our personal comfort. Are you exceedingly glad when you get your dream car, but indifferent to someone responding to the gospel, right? Are you, exceeding, are you exceedingly glad when you get a bursary, a job, or a promotion, but casual and apathetic when someone repents of their sin? Jesus didn't die so I could be comfortable, right? He died so that men and women 
could be saved. And if that doesn't bring you the greatest joy, then maybe you should check your heart and your desires. God, God will remove the source of comfort, right? Uh, as we see now with Jonah, he will get a worm to eat the plant and he will make it really hot. He sends a heat wave so that the plant dies. And Jonah says in verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live. So that's really pathetic. Look, there are times, there are times in the Psalms where we see people go through real darkness and real depression. Even Jesus suffered that. But this is Jonah throwing a tantrum. And it's, a, it's an expression of prideful self-pity. When you feel sorry for yourself just because you don't get your way. You know, if it, it would be better if I was dead. Then they would miss me. Right? It's, it's childish. It's immature of Jonah. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. So he's behaving like a child. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's the end of the book. Right? That's how the book ends. So how is Jonah going to respond? How are you and I going to respond? Because it's, it's, it's a question that the Lord just leaves, right? It's like a cliffhanger, which makes us think, how are you going to respond to this? Jonah has pity on the plant. He didn't labor over it. He didn't make it grow. It came and went in one night. But God did labor over Nineveh, right? He made it grow. And he has been at work on Nineveh, not one night, but for years. So shouldn't God pity its 120,000 people? Should God have pity on Nineveh? You know, God loves to show mercy and we, his people, should also love mercy. And we should desire to see God's mercy go out to everyone, even our enemies, right? Whether it's our enemy enemy, our political enemies, our whatever kind of enemy you have. Are we willing to reach out to the lost at the expense of our own comfort, right? At the expense of our feelings about other people. And so Jonah is great. The book of Jonah is great because it warns us about trying to run away from God, and, and living in rebellion. But it also keeps us looking outward right, to those who are different to us, for one. The moment we as Christians try to create communities or cliques that we are comfortable with, you know, we only want these people to be saved. We only want these people to know the Lord and have fellowship with Him. Uh, we're creating a social, uh, a social club. Then we've lost the plot. Right? We should be looking and actively seeking out the lost even those that we have nothing in common with. Okay. So um, any, any questions, comments on, on Jonah? Before we move on to Micah. Okay, Percy. Yeah. Yeah, can, I can hear you. Go ahead. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what I'm hearing is that uh, you believe that Jonah died and went to hell, and then from there he prayed, and then uh, the Lord uh, brought salvation to him. Am I correct with, with that view? So, so if, if, if that's your view, uh, can God uh, hear prayers from 
people who are in hell? And would you say that Jonah was not saved prior to, to, to him disobeying God? Because, you know, like if he was saved before that, he couldn't have lost his salvation and gone to hell. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I think. Uh, sorry, just one other question. I think it's kind of similar to you also. So yeah, Jonah went to to Sheol, I think, um, and yeah, I think I think it does play from there, which is not a unique thing in scripture. It's also happened um, with. Uh, there's another character. Uh, who's that guy? Who was? Um, Okay, there's a name that I'm thinking of, but you know what? I think I think there's a there's a whole topic on the thing of shell. Let me leave it for the end, right? Can we park that and then I'll come to it? Let's just get through Micah and then we get to the whole topic of shell and that. Is that fine? Yeah, cool. Okay, cool. So yeah, we'll get to that just now. Um, let's. Okay, let's do that. Um, let's do Micah quickly, and. Uh, yeah, we won't spend much time in Micah. It's not... Uh, so, okay, Micah... The book of Micah is sometimes called Mini Isaiah, right? Because he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. So they were around at the same time. Uh, Amos and Hosea, we looked at those books two weeks ago. They're also contemporaries, right? They were all alive and around the same time. Which explains why you will find similar themes in these books if you were to read them side by side. They were all confronting the same kinds of cultural problems. The two main problems being idolatry and social injustice. So Micah was prophet to both the northern and the southern kingdom, right? Both Judah and Israel. And he saw the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. So the book itself is divided into three oracles, right? Three speeches, uh, each beginning with the word here. So chapter 1 starts with uh, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth. Chapter 3 starts with hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Chapter 6 is the third section, starts with hear what the Lord says. So those are the three sections. And it's a pretty straightforward book. It's pretty straightforward what happens here. It's what we've seen in the prophets, right? It's the prophetic cycle. Judgment and then a promise of hope and restoration. And one of the sections of hope is a beautiful message about the one to be born in Bethlehem. So turn to chapter 5 of Micah. If you look at chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is quote, so this is quoted in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod, remember Herod asks the wise men and the scribes, where is this Messiah going to be born? And what do they say? In verse 5 of, of Matthew 2, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so, for so is written by the prophet. Right? And then they refer to Micah. So the chief priests and the scribes, they understood this passage to be about the Messiah. It's, it's not like the Bible was not clear about this, right? Uh, and that is where that is where Jesus was born. And again, it's God's sovereignty that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. It's actually a miracle. You can't choose the date you will be born or the time or even to which family you will be born, right? 
But as you read the Gospels, you see how God has always had it planned out, right? Even from the times of Micah. Um, you can't decide where you're born, but God is in control of these things. And if you go to chapter 6, so chapter 6, verse 1, Hear what the Lord says, Arise, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, for he will contend with Israel. So this is courtroom language, right? It's like you're in a court. God is bringing Israel into a courtroom, into courtroom to show them their sinful ways. He's accusing them, right? He's bringing them uh, to account for their actions. And uh, if you look at verse 6, another, another beautiful passage on what God requires of us. He says, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So the people, the people were using these things, right? They, were, they, were, they had these sacrifices and these offerings to impress God, essentially to bribe God. And if you do that, you are not a worshiper, you are a briber. What God really wants is heart changing. That is what God wants from his people, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk in humility before him. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is what pleases God. And this will have an outworking on how you live, making you generous and sacrificial. But we always we are always tempted to try and twist God's arm with bribery, right? Don't don't try to buy God's favor. Don't try to earn a blessing from the Lord. I think it's a temptation uh, that Christians tend to uh, fall to fall into, right? Uh, uh, let me let me be a more devoted believer. Let me pray more. Let me do this more, and maybe then I'll have God's favor. But we already have it, right? In Christ. We have the fullness of God. He has already bestowed on us blessings and grace and mercy. Chapter 7, if you go to chapter 7, verse 18, verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will, cast all our, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So another beautiful passage. And again, the language, the language reminds us of Exodus 34, right? Steadfast love, passing over transgression. And remember, Exodus 34 is kind of the high point of the Old Testament in terms of God revealing who he is. He describes himself as a loving God, showing steadfast love and passing over transgression. And so the, this, book, this book ends with hope, right? With the complete forgiving of sin. And that is a blessing that is going to come with the new covenant, with the coming of Christ. The complete forgiveness of sin. The gospel is going to conquer the world but an essential part of the gospel 
and its message is found in the key word to repent, right? Repent and believe. Before we ask, before we ask what we are to believe, we must first ask what are we to repent of, right? We need, we need to repent of great evil as defined by scripture. And our view of how great and amazing and how high our salvation goes will be shaped by how deep we believe the sin goes, right? If you don't think much of sin, you won't think much of grace and mercy and what Christ has done. But in this book, in Micah, the Lord teaches, the Lord teaches us that the one who loves much is the one who has forgiven much. And as for those who love God, uh, those of us who love God, we need to do three things, right? That's, that's the main thing you will get from, from, from Micah. First, to do justice. Second, to love mercy. And third, walk humbly with your God. And we can only do this when we come to the cross. Only there I can do what is just, right? Only there I can love the mercy of God. Only there can I behold the humility of God, right? Because we see it in Christ. Um, in Jesus, I can do justice. In Jesus, I can love mercy. And in Jesus, I can walk with humility. Only there, right? So that's, that's a, a very high view um, summary of Micah. Again, it's, it's, we've, we've dealt a lot with the themes and the messages. It's kind of generic in that sense with uh, the other minor prophets. So, yeah, that's Micah. Any questions on that? Any questions on that before we go back to the subject of Sheol? Yeah. 